supposed to earn it Or what to do with it or how to keep it You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret But you're not the only one Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun Now your healing has begun It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn Good morning, Deadbeats. It's me, your host, Gabby Dunn. And this is Bad With Money. When I started as a woman loosely in the financial sphere, people were always trying to compare me to other women in the industry. My brand was Bad With Money. And so it seemed natural that fans were constantly tagging me alongside another woman in the financial space who called herself Broke Millennial. The tweets and comments insisted that we absolutely needed to meet. Broke Millennial's real name is Erin Lowry, and she's the author of the book Broke Millennial. Look, my book's also called Bad With Money. We like to keep our brand simple here. And she also wrote a sequel called Broke Millennial Takes On Investing, which was published in April of this year. A little while ago, Erin and I finally met up in person in Los Angeles at a coffee shop. I also got to meet her sister. It was a great time. She admitted the big reason she wrote her second book about investing was as motivation to wrap her own mind around the confusing concept of investing. It's the same reason I started this show, Bad With Money, to force myself to learn about topics I never wanted to learn about. And here we are, four seasons later. I should admit I had an initial aversion to the title Broke Millennial, but Erin is fully aware of the difference between being broke and being poor, and of the stigma against the word millennial. And to be fair, I've heard a lot of criticism about my choosing the title Bad With Money, too, including that it's off-putting. Although I've also been told that the title is what makes listeners trust the show, so who knows? Opinions are like assholes. This episode is maybe the most confusing information dump I've experienced on the show, and I think it shows in my questions and reactions. This is not Aaron's fault. It's investing. I hate looking stupid, even though I end up doing it so very often. At certain points, my eyes crossed and I wished I could open Instagram on my phone. It's my instinct not to touch anything that feels intellectually insurmountable. Even though I'm not entirely sure I understand everything Aaron shared, the conversation was incredibly needed. I listened to it over and over again, understanding more each time. Investing is one of the scariest parts of money. I could probably listen to this episode a thousand more times and read Aaron's book once a day and still not feel fully prepared. But hardly anyone does. That's the secret. And we're really lucky that Aaron's done the research and is willing to distill it down for us. So if I can shed my pride and get into this conversation, you can too. I started Broke Millennial about six and a half years ago. It was January of 2013. And for context, I moved to New York right after graduating from college. And I was earning $23,000 my first year working three different jobs. And then my second year, I was earning a whopping $37,500, which in New York is not a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And I definitely felt broke for a good chunk of that. And it also was meant and still is meant to be more of a generational moniker. Mm -hmm. That's why I didn't call it the broke millennial. It's just broke millennial. Because a lot of my friends and still to this day, a lot of fellow millennials, that's how they feel. It's this feeling of broke. Yeah, it's the difference between um, poor and broke, which is something that I had to go through my book and really pay attention to because it was like, okay, when I say when I say broke, do I mean poor? And when I say poor, do I mean broke? And I do personally feel that there's a big difference between mm-hmm. the two. And 
definitely one reason I didn't say poor millennial, particularly in regards to myself, because and I very admittedly talk about a lot of the privilege that I come from in my own background, not just because of, you know, who I am and that I am an able-bodied, straight, white American woman, but also the fact that I came from a very financially stable household. There was a lot of financial privilege in my upbringing. Mm -hmm. And So I felt it was huge to make sure to point out the difference between the two of them. And still to this day, I I have a lot of feelings actually around that word and the differences between how we use them because I don't love when people say things like that they're pretending to be poor and that's kind of poverty porn, to be honest. And that's a terrible way to word it, but I'm not a fan and it makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I hate when someone is like, I'm so poor right now. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're just broke. Like broke to me is like you don't have a lot of spending money. But poor is like you don't have assets. You don't have a way of getting – Like, you know what I mean? Like you're you, – there's no um, backup plan. There's nothing that you could like liquidate. Like it's – that's the difference. And that honestly really got brought to my attention very early in my 20s. I remember, I think it was actually around the time that I started the website Broke Millennial. And I said, and I used the word poor, I Mm -hmm. said something like, "Ugh, I feel so poor right now. And a friend of mine who grew up in a very, I, I won't share all of his information, but he grew up in a not comfortable financial situation. And his head whipped around and looked at me and he went, you are not, nor have you ever been poor. Exactly. And just the reaction And that it's stuck with me. Like still to this day, it's something that I always think about when we're talking about the differences between these words. People go, oh, well, now that you make more money, you're not bad with money anymore. And I was like, "Uh, uh, sir, (laughs) let me drop some knowledge on you. Uh, Being bad with money doesn't mean like broke or poor or rich or whatever or comfortable. It's like it's like a way of being like, it's like you are, you can, I'll let you in on a secret. You can get a bunch of money and still be super bad with it. In fact, now you have more to, more to mess up with. I was actually just talking to someone about how many people who make six figure salaries are living paycheck to paycheck. Of course. Very, yeah. very common situation. Yeah. Like I think the the words broke and poor and like, you know, especially you as broke millennial and me as bad with money, like our branding, it is like people are like, well, but now that that this is the situation and it's like st- you could still be bad. And then if you're still bad with money, you're still you're still ending up broke somehow. And that's the problem. My favorite, too, is when people say it's one of two versions. It's either, well, are you going to be rich millennial now or Ah! are you going to when are you going to stop using millennial when you're no longer a millennial? And I was like, ah, I will never no longer be a millennial. That is a generational moniker. Yeah. Be applicable to me forever, just like Gen Xers and baby boomers. Yeah. And the greatest generation. That's just the term, which I do think it's interesting compared to I was listening back to one of the old episodes where one of your guests was talking about how she doesn't like to use the word millennial. Mm -hmm. And I very much understand why. I mean, made a lot of sense. I highly encourage people to go back and listen to that episode if they haven't. That's with um, Nona Aronowitz. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it, it, the points that she was making, I very much agreed with, but as well, it's a very loaded term. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to pay attention to when it gets used and when it doesn't get used. Yeah. So you did a broke millennial book. And then now what I brought you on and what I want to talk to you about 
is the second book, which is about investing. When we met up in LA, we talked about how you were like, oh, I don't really, I didn't really know anything about it. Like I wrote this book so I could, so I could learn about investing because it just was like so overwhelming. How, how do you start, you know, with the book? Like, how do you like even start to give the people something to work with? It all starts with, here's why it's important. Mm-hmm. And then are you actually ready? That's what the first two chapters actually get into. And then it gets into what the terms are that you need to know. So the very beginning isn't even saying, you know, here, go invest in this index fund and keep doing it every month for a blah, You've blah, already blah, lost time. me. Exactly. And that's why You've I You've already lost me. <laughs> and to me, that's what was so important. And to give a bit more context. So you mentioned I, the first book I came out with was Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Mm-hmm. And that just covered what I would consider the basics. Now, in the end of that book, there are a couple chapters about, all right, you're 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 getting it together. It's next phases. What do we want to talk about? And I had a very short chapter on investing, primarily focused on retirement accounts, because that's how most of us start. Most Mm -hmm. of us, very first introduction we get to investing is either a 401k or a 403b or an IRA. Those are the typical retirement plans. Dude, when I had a 401k at companies that I worked at, no clue that that was invested. No clue. Couldn't have told you. They would have been like, what is it? And I'd be like, I think it's like a savings account. And they just like take some money and put it in. Couldn't have gunned my head. Couldn't have told you it was investing. That is my biggest soapbox thing right now, by the way. (laughs) You just touched on it. And I write about this extensively in the book. We have to change our language because of that exact reason. More from Erin after the break. Let's get back into it with Erin. We say as a community, as a society, save for retirement. And that is the wrong word. You are investing for retirement. And I am on a absolute campaign to change this language because that simple language shift and words have so much power, that simple language shift makes you feel more empowered to invest because you're like, okay, I started. I am investing. Mm -hmm. Got it. And that's huge. Now, I will say very quickly before we kind of loop back to how the book starts and why I started writing it, while we're on the topic of retirement, this is the one time that I make kind of an actionable, prescriptive, here's a way to get started suggestion for people when it comes to investing, because Mm -hmm. I have such a vivid memory of the first time I had access to a 401k. I remember, you know, filling out my name, my social security number, my address, all the information they needed to open the account. And I get to the page where it's like, here are your investment options. And I look and see all these names like Dodge and Cox, large cap, small cap. I don't know what any of these words mean. So mm-hmm. I did what most people would do. And I just clicked out of the browser. Yep. It was too overwhelming. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So the simple solution when you're in that situation is to look for what's known as either a target date fund. Sometimes it's called an all-in-one fund or a life cycle fund. What these are, and it's tied to a year. So let's say that you're going to retire around the year 2065. Normally, they're in five-year increments. Okay. So you would pick target date fund 2065. And what that fund is going to automatically do is there is a human being who's managing the fund. So it's known as actively managed when a human being is picking out what's in there. What what website are you on when you do this? So this is when you're signing up for your 401k or an IRA. Oh, okay. If you started a job. Yeah. You've started a job. You started a job. Or you're self-employed. 
because as am I, as are you, totally yeah. understand that feeling. Mm-hmm. So maybe you're not getting a 401k, maybe you're opening an IRA for yourself. But whatever you're doing, you're trying now to figure out what investments you're picking. And okay. that's such an overwhelming feeling. So that's if you're you self-employed. Oh, sorry, sorry. If you're self-employed, what website are you going to? <laughs> oh, such a good question. You have to go through what's called a brokerage, which is just basically the terminology for the investment company that can help you buy the investments because you yourself can't just call up, you know, the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ and say, hey, I would like to buy this investment. Honey, I've tried. They'll hang up on you. (laughs) Yes, they will. Okay, wait. So back up. So we got to decode all of it. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. So if you, okay. So if you're working at a job, you go to HR, you go, hello, I assume Carol in HR. Can I have, um, can I, I'm signing up for my 401k. And and I want to look at what I can can get there, and then that's like a little bit more structured. But if you're if you're someone who is self employed, you gotta you gotta find a brokerage. For how do you find that? So one of the ways that you can do it is to ask people that you know who do invest or mm-hmm. do have. And an IRA, for the record, is an individual retirement arrangement or account. What the mm-hmm. A stands for is actually up for debate. But the IRS says arrangement, so I'm going to say arrangement. And that is essentially a way for you to be investing for retirement without needing a company to open the account on your behalf. So So if you're not working for a company, if you work for Mm -hmm. yourself, you open an IRA in order to save for retirement um, or invest, sorry, whoa, invest for retirement uh, uh, without the help of Carolyn HR. Without the help of Carolyn HR. Now, I don't want to take us too far down a rabbit hole, mm-hmm. but if you do have help from Carolyn HR, you actually still can open an IRA on your own. You're mm-hmm. totally able to do it if you are traditionally employed. And there are different terms for what you can have if you are self-employed. So it's just a regular IRA. Mm-hmm. There's what's called a SEP IRA, S-E-P. That's what and I have. Yes, self-employed person, too. no? Self-employed pension. Yeah, IRA, self-employed person. I like that better because pension is a confusing term as well. And then there's also a solo 401k. Now, without getting too technical, the big, big difference is that if you just do a regular IRA, yeah, the maximum amount of money you can put in there in a year is $6,000 as of 2019. Right. So there's but limits. When, limits. And there's limits on all of them, but the limits get much higher when you have a SEP IRA or a solo 401k. So when you're a self-employed person... As you start to earn more and your business is starting to do better, it probably makes sense to do one of the options that offers you a bigger limit because then you can put more money away for retirement. Right. So to pull it back to the whole idea of the target date fund, the reason that I like to mention them is because it's a way for you to make sure that your money is actually invested and takes out that fear and intimidation factor of figuring out what exactly do I need to be picking as my investments. But I do want to bring up the criticisms of them as well, because they are kind of designed as a one-size-fits-all solution. And we all know that personal finance is, as the cliche goes, personal. And you really should have an investing plan that's aligned very specifically to you. So that's one of the big criticisms, is you're in a fund that is not necessarily perfectly tailored to you and your goals and how you feel about risk and how you feel about investing. So and right, the fees so it's- are higher. The fees are higher on that? 
Yes, the fees are higher than if you went in and picked your own individual, let's say, index funds, which is a term for a bundle of investments that are all together that... We, it's a bit complicated to go down the rabbit hole, but there are index funds that you can get into that mirror a certain amount of companies that are on the stock market. So if you do that by yourself, that's called passively managed when there's not a human around picking Got everything it. that goes into the fund, and that's going to be a bit cheaper. But the reason I like to bring up target date funds is because when you're first getting started, when it's just that intimidation thing, it's a way to get in, make sure your money is actually invested, and make sure it's growing for you. And then you can always go back in later and change it. There's no rule that says you have to stay on this one target date fund until you retire. So you can always go in and change your investment selections and do something that's a little bit more customized to you as you get further down your investing journey. But it's just a simple way to start. Customized how, though? Like, like is it customized? Because, you know, I've, I had um, a woman on the show called Mor- uh, Morgan Simon who talked about impact investing, where it's like, you know, choosing investments that you actually agree with and that aren't, like, destroying the earth or, like, you know, you're not accidentally invested in the NRA or Chick-fil-A or something. But also, like, you're talking about also, like, if you want, a certain thing in the future, like, or if you know how much you think you'll need to like live on each year, which again is like, what am I, a genie? What am I, like <laughs> a, a Miss Cleo? So it's a good question. And I think there's two ways to look at customized. So when I mention a target date fund, the problem is it's not taking into account your actual goals or your risk tolerance. And risk tolerance is a word that gets used a lot when we talk about investing because everybody relates to risk differently. The will, the amount of risk, and usually what that means is how much you're investing in stocks, what percentage you're investing in stocks compared to bonds or something that's a little more conservative. But it's important to make sure that For instance, if you're nearing retirement, sometimes those funds might make your money a little too conservative, a little too early, which means that it's not growing as much as you might need it to be growing. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll get right back to Aaron. And now we're back. But the risk is then what? The risk is then like what happened with um, people's retirements in 2008 where everybody like that's the thing that freaks people out is like it, it isn't saving for retirement. It's investing for retirement. So who who knows? Tomorrow, that's what people get worried about is that their money's going to like just disappear. So the problem with going too conservative too early is that your money isn't growing with you. And that is Part of the reason that you're right, because 2008 and because of the hit that a lot of retirement accounts took, it really freaks people out. But that's why there's this concept known as asset allocation. So what percentage of your portfolio is in different things? So you might hear a term like 70-30. That means 70% is in stocks, 30% are in bonds. Bonds are considered to be a more conservative investment. And you might have a 70-20-10 split with 10% just sitting in cash. And that's obviously the ultimate conservative option. So the problem is- Oh, go for it. Well, if you're at 65, you might have another 30 years to live. So if you've put all 100% of your money into something that's really conservative, then it might not be getting the returns that you need it to be getting in order to ensure that you're not going to outlive your money and not might not be growing at all. But mm-hmm. what you could do is make sure that maybe it's just 20% or 30% that's invested in the stock market. So if an 08 happens, if something bad happens again, yes, you're going to take a bit of a hit, but it won't be as dramatic as if 
80% of it is still in stocks, then you're going to take a really big hit. So don't put everything in the stock market. Just put in what you're comfortable with, like when you're gambling. It's not gambling, though. I will push Ah. back on you on using that word. And here's why. Ma'am. Okay, what? Here is why I don't like to liken it to gambling. Because when, and this will come back also to impact investing. When you own stock, you own a small piece of the company, which Mm -hmm. also means depending on the type of stock you own or the type of shares you own, you might get a vote. You might have a voice in the direction of the company. Mm -hmm. When you put, you know, $20 $20 down at a blackjack table at the Bellagio. You do not own a piece of the Bellagio. Says so you. there is. <laughs> I bet says the owner of the Bellagio too. <laughs> I don't so know. So that is just like an easy fundamental difference is that with gambling, the other thing too is with investing, you should be making more you know, researched, educated decisions about how you're putting your money in. And with gambling, it is really more of a game of chance. Sure. I mean, so to go back, so what happened in 2008 was that a lot of people had their retirements um, in the stock market and the stock market crashed. No, it did. Yes, it did. And it and a lot of people weren't the way that the asset allocation happened. Perhaps there wasn't enough playing defense as you got close to retirement. Maybe too much was still in stocks when it should have been rebalanced more towards being conservative. Not everyone, but that was some of the problem. I don't think people knew. I think people just were like, Correct. I'm invest, I'm quote unquote saving for retirement. They don't realize that it's in actually investing for retirement. So they put everything there and they go, that's great. I'm done. And they don't realize that it's like an active thing that you have to keep looking at and thinking about and changing because they just go, no, 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 I put it here. It's, it's safe. And then it, and then it wasn't safe. And that's the thing that freaks me out is like, Because that's why I say gambling, right? Because you put in only as much. In my mind, I'm like, I'm going to put in only as much as I'm comfortable losing. And that's a perfectly fine way to think about it. And you are 100% right that a lot of this happened because there was not the necessary education component to ensure that people understood, A, that they were putting risk on their money, and B, Mm -hmm. that as you get closer to retirement, you have to rebalance. And that's just the fancy way of saying you have to change how much money is in stocks compared to bonds compared to other asset options. And yeah, a lot of people were never told. That was never explained. And that's a big thing that I hope that not only my book, but other people that talk about investing, we start to make sure that the education process is happening early. Yeah. Because, okay, so bonds are Let's explain what bonds are because people might not know. Bonds are debt. And that sounds real weird. But one of the ways that I was explaining it recently is a lot of us have student loans. So we understand what that means. Mm -hmm. And so the way to kind of think about it is that when you buy a bond, you are buying a piece of a company or possibly a government's debt. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you are the student loan servicer and the company or the government is you, the student loan borrower. Mm-hmm. So you kind of flip flip the game a little bit. So they're borrowing from you. Yes. Got and it. so then what happens is just like how we pay interest on our student loans, they are paying interest to you because you own the bond. And then what will happen is there's a set amount of time that you're going to own that bond. Let's say it's going to be five years. So every year you get interest for the fact that you bought some of their debt. And then at the end, the bond reaches what's called maturity. And at that point, they have to pay you back the full balance. 
So it's plus just the like interest. Your, plus the plus you've been getting the interest the whole time, and yes, the interest that's owed to you, you get. So it's considered a safer investment compared to stock market or compared to stocks mm -hmm. because you're buying a debt that you assume will get repaid. So and and mostly they do get repaid, right? Largely, there yeah. are times that bonds fail, and there are bonds that are rated at different risk levels. So that's always something you want to check out is what is the riskiness of the bond. Mm -hmm. But largely, they are considered safer and more conservative than investing in the stock market. And how long until you get like, is it different lengths of time that they have to yep. pay you back? They're all different mm. lengths of time. So you can kind of decide just sort of like with student loans. But generally, you'll probably see like five years is not an uncommon amount of time to see. But maybe you have one that's one year. Maybe you have one that's longer. Totally depends. And they send you a check or something? So probably not. It'd probably be wherever you bought it. Um, let's say you went through a brokerage account. So that could be with a company like a Vanguard or a Fidelity or a Charles Schwab. Maybe it's through a robo-advisor like a Betterment or a Wealth Simple or a Wealthfront. So I'm not endorsing anyone. I'm just giving you names, which I think is always important to say. But it could be through one of those and then it will just get deposited into your account. It probably probably won't come via check, but maybe. You always deposited know. every year? It could be every quarter, so it could be every four months, or it could just be annually once a year. When you buy the bond, there will be information about how often you get paid the interest. And what the interest is. And what the rate is, which you always want to know. You want right. to know how much money you're going to be getting. Right. Interesting. So, okay. So this is terrifying. And I feel like I want to put all my money in a savings account and never and never let anyone look at it. And I'm scared to put it places. And also, uh, how do you know who to trust? So like if you're if I'm listening to this and I'm me four years ago or let's say me last week, I <laughs> I I'm like I have like a, a maybe a hundred dollars, maybe less, maybe a hundred dollars to play with. Like I'm terrified of what to, to do with it. I might just take it out in cash and put it in my mattress. How do you talk to someone who's like, this is the most scary, most confusing thing of all time, and also I don't have any money? There's a couple of things that I want to say. One, there is a quote from the book that one of the women that I interviewed said that resonated so well with me, and I like to share it because I think it will resonate with the exact person you're describing. And that is, she said, listen, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but... Listen, if investing makes you nauseous, you can't sleep at night, you can't stomach it, that's okay. But what you need to understand is that when you invest, your money does some of the heavy lifting for you. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to save so much more money to try to achieve the same result. Yeah. And that was a great way to position it. Because if you think about even just trying the amount of money that you would have to save every month to try to get to a million dollars in 40 years... Mm -hmm. compared to if you're getting a 7% return in the stock market and how much more quickly that money will grow for you over that period of time and doing the math on that, it really does start to illuminate why it's important to start. Now, fear is totally normal. And I think the hardest part is that the way, and even, you know, I haven't solved the problem. It's hard to explain things without establishing a common language because investing is kind of its own foreign language that you have to learn in order to start to feel confident about it. Oh, for sure. I mean, a, a lot of these words don't make like don't make any sense to me, didn't make any sense to me. 
And I think people use them in a way that's like, well, everyone knows what this is. It's very ubiquitous. And you're right. like, and then everyone just goes, uh-huh. And then you end up with people losing their entire retirements because they were just started to be like, yeah, yeah, definitely. And for that's one reason in the start of the book, I just go over terminology. And I share a story in the beginning of that chapter about I remember very vividly sitting in algebra class and my teacher saying like coefficient. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and therefore, I could not figure out how to solve the problem because I did not know what he was saying. And I felt stupid raising my hand and asking. Mm-hmm. Investing is the same. Yes. A lot of times we feel stupid asking because everyone throws around words like index fund. I'm guilty. I do it too now that it's like, oh, yeah, well, obviously, you know what that is. But of course you don't. If you've never read about investing, studied investing, learned about it, this isn't stuff you naturally would know. But it's having to put ourselves outside of our comfort zones to ask the questions or just to pick up the reading material. And you got to take time to sit through it and read it over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I have have I have had to reread and ask people to explain things like tax loss harvesting. Still can't succinctly explain it to you. Have a pretty basic understanding of how it tax works. loss yeah. harvesting. What is that? So that ugh, and so trying to explain it well and simplest like in a simple way is very hard, but essentially when you invest, taxes come into play. So oh, you have don't to pay taxes on. Ugh. Uncle Sam always wants his cut. Just a fundamental thing to know about money. Girl. And so one thing when you're investing is like kind of in life, you're trying to minimize how much you're going to have to pay in tax. So sure. sometimes you want to sell what you might be considering an underperforming stock. But when you sell it, one, it could trigger taxes. And two, it could throw your overall investment strategy out of whack. So then you need to buy something else to replace it. And it has to do with buying something that's similar so it minimizes your taxes and making sure that your overall portfolio stays balanced. So this is is still very complicated and I am still not great at explaining it well. (laughs) This is a full nightmare. Okay, so... But this, so this is what you're saying, right? So you're like, okay, it has to match your goals. Like, what goals? Like, how do you, how do you know what goals you are? What I don't have any. I, I'm gonna maybe have lunch later. That's the furthest I've gotten in terms of goals. Like, okay, but here's a question. Yeah. In the next five years, sure. Is there something that you want to achieve financially? Yeah, I guess I want to like. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Because things change. Like, you know, I was in a relationship. Now I'm not in a relationship. I was like, maybe I'm like, yeah, I should get in a house. But then I'm like, I'll never do that. Like, I have no, I, you know, um, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, that would be the first step. Just yeah. Just in general, both in just general personal finance, but with investing. And I do consider it one of the hardest steps is you have to sit down and think through what are my goals. And the reason you have to think through them is because when you want to achieve certain things will directly impact how and if you're going to invest for them. So to kick it to personal goals that I would have, for instance, one of my big goals is to help my husband pay off his student loans in the next two years. That's a huge financial goal of mine. Yeah. But we're not going to invest that money That money is money we don't want to put any risk on. We just Mm -hmm. want to be shoveling it as quickly as we can towards the student loan debt. Mm -hmm. So that goal indicates to me that I don't want to put risk on it. 
and that I want to put it just directly towards the student loans. So that is a clarifying answer to me about how or if I should invest. Now, on the other side, let's say, okay, in the next 10 years, I would like to be able to buy an apartment in New York City. Yeah. Well, that's really expensive. Yeah. And the other thing is I have to decide do I, for let's say the first five years of that goal, want to invest the money that would be my down payment so that it has the opportunity to earn more than what it would do just sitting in a savings account? Mm-hmm. And if I do want to invest, how risky do I want to be with it? Do I want to take a lot of risk and potentially get a high reward? Or do I want to be a little more conservative with that investment and maybe not get as high of an interest rate as I would if I was taking more risk, but probably better than if it was sitting in a savings account? Sure. And those questions and answering those questions will completely dictate how and the type of investments I am going to pick, which is why goal setting is the absolute first part of any investing strategy. I just think it's so hard when you're paycheck to paycheck to think about a goal at all. And it's also like, so um, my producer sent me this very funny tweet from Randall Otis TV that just says, the stock market is astrology for rich people. Um, (laughs) And I think that's what people really think. Like, I think that it's this thing where they're like, well, I'm locked out of it because I I make, you know, I finish my bills and I have like 100 bucks or 50 bucks in my bank account. Or, you know, like, I think it's, is it this thing that, that people are, some people are just locked out of? Some people, yes, I would love to say that, no, of course, anyone can invest. But honestly, that's not true. And there's a couple of reasons why. First of all, I mentioned briefly earlier that I have this concept of putting on your financial oxygen mask. And there is a checklist, and I outline it in the book, of what you really need to be doing in order to ensure that you have a very rock-solid financial foundation for yourself Mm -hmm. before you start investing. Because you are putting risk on your money. So you do not want to put risk on your money if you don't, let's say, have a fully funded emergency fund. Because, yeah, stuff's going to go wrong in your life for all of us. Mm -hmm. So if your money's tied up in the market and you can't get it out quickly or maybe the market's not doing well, so if you sell your investment, it means you're locking in a loss, which means you're maybe selling for less than you even originally put in, so you're losing money Mm -hmm. because you have to cover an emergency. We don't want anyone in that position. So if you're in the paycheck to paycheck cycle, outside of taking advantage of an employer 401k if you have one or putting a little money aside for retirement, that's really the only way you should be investing at that point. You're not yet in a position to be investing otherwise, which is why we continue to have this feeling that it's just for rich people. And because sometimes it's expensive to get started. Luckily, technology is changing that a little bit. There are some ways that you can get in with micro-investing, which is with the apps. So you might have heard like a Robinhood or an Acorns or Stash, and then you only need a couple of bucks to get started. Yeah, explain explain that. Because I think that most of my audience, my listening audience, would would be more interested in the micro-investing stuff. And even like I put, I have not to brag, LOL, I have Bitcoin and I just like got like $100 of Bitcoin last year and then I just like leave it in the app and I never think about it. But it's like, you know, it's like just um, small. You're not like putting like $40,000 into the stock market or whatever. And you don't need that kind of money to get started either. Now with the micro investing, what the perk is, is that you can quite literally get started with just a few dollars. 
Mm-hmm. And you can just be putting, you know, five or ten dollars a month in there. But I would caution you that that's not enough. And the reason I say that is because they charge you a fee. And yeah, of course they should. Yeah. It's a for-profit service. They need to be earning money too. And the fee doesn't sound that high. For a lot of them, it's a dollar, maybe two dollars, maybe three dollars. I live in New York City. I cannot even do a load of laundry for a dollar. So that sounds like a really good deal. Like, hey, I can be investing and it only costs me a dollar a month. But the problem is if you only put in a handful of dollars every single month, that fee is costing you any returns you are actually going to Mm -hmm, make from the investments. mm -hmm. So my rule of thumb is minimum $25, preferably $50 that you can per month put in. Because that way, it's actually going to be starting to grow for you, and your returns are actually going to pay off, and the fee will not be eating up the entire amount of money that you're putting in. What ret- what would the returns be? Like what, you know, what are we looking at? Totally depends. A very common average that you'll hear kind of batted around a lot when you read about the stock market or when people just talk about it is this idea of 7%. Okay. And where that comes from is this looking back over the history of the stock market with the average return over all of the years tends to be about 7%, meaning that some years are great and maybe you're getting 12 to 15 and some years are crappy and maybe you're getting either a negative number or you're getting 1, 2 or 3%. So the thought is the average return conservatively people like to say is 7%. That's the rule of thumb people use. When you're looking at investing in a micro app, though, or micro investing app, it really does depend on the kind of portfolio you pick. And they'll ask you, depending on the app, but most of them will say, do you want to be aggressive, moderately aggressive, moderate, Mm -hmm. moderately conservative, or conservative? Those are the options you tend to have. Mm -hmm. And what's nice is with those guys and with the robo-advisors, they ask you a lot of questions in the beginning. So it's not like they expect you to come fully formed. Hey, I know my risk tolerance. This is exactly how much risk I want to take. And these are all Mm -hmm. my goals. And this is how I should be investing. They go through a questionnaire process with you to help determine that information. And based on how you answer these questions, they will make a suggestion to you of, hey, sounds like you're a little bit wary and you don't want to take a lot of risk, and maybe you want access to this money in the next 10 years. So Mm -hmm. let's go moderately aggressive instead of aggressive, or let's go moderate, or whatever the answer might be for you. Access to the money in the next 10 years? What do you mean? So that comes back to the idea of your goal, your goal setting. So if you decide, hey, I want to be saving up for my child's college education. My kid's going to be going, my kid's seven now, going to be going to college in about 10 years. Mm -hmm. So in 10 years, I need to use this money. That's what's going to, it's called time horizon. That's the fancy term that gets used that just means when do you need the money? Got it. So that indicates how much risk you should be taking. Shorter term goals mean you want to take a little less risk. Longer term goals, you have a bit more time. You can be aggressive in the beginning. And then as you get closer to whatever that goal is, you want to start moving your portfolio to being more conservative. It's called rebalancing, where you sell some investments and buy some ones that are a little bit more conservative, which ties back to in the beginning when we said a lot of people lost a lot of money in their retirement accounts. And oftentimes because they were too aggressive when they needed the money to be a bit more conservative. So with with the, that kind of stuff, the apps and the robo advisors, are you you have to be really on top of it, or is it like a lot with like if you have just like a, a brokerage firm that you've chosen that you've like asked around and you you've been like okay, who do I trust or whatever? It's this thing of like okay, do I know enough to do this myself, or 
am I going to trust someone and then potentially, I, I mean, get made off? I don't know. Everything is scary, Erin. <laughs> I totally understand that. And you are not going to get made off by the robo-advisors or by the investing apps that have what is called SPIC insurance. And I am going to have to look up what the acronym stands for. But essentially, if you've heard of FDIC insurance, that mm-hmm. is insurance on your bank's. So if you remember watching the movie, It's a Wonderful Life at any point, there's that scene with George Bailey at the bank and all the people are running in and demanding their money. Mm -hmm. And that was called a run on the bank. So FDIC insurance was created after the Great Depression so that essentially, coming back to a terrible term from 2008, they were too big to fail. Mm-hmm. So that the the government was going to back these banks. So if something went wrong, the government was insuring your money up to today, I believe it's two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay. So you don't just get two fifty if the banks fail. If you have two fifty in there, you get two fifty back. However much money you had in there, that's what you get back. Okay. So SPIC insurance, it is essentially the guarantee that if the particular brokerage that you are using fails for whatever reason, your money does not go away. Okay. Because you're not invested, and I'm going to make up names so that I'm not like accidentally throwing anybody under the bus. Mm-hmm. But let's say that you, the brokerage that you use, it was called Prestige. Mm-hmm. Just there's a Prestige Fine Dry Cleaners receipt on my desk. That is where I actually just came up with this word. It's not Perfect. The name of a real brokerage. Perfect. So let's say it's called Prestige. That's who you use to go in and you own shares of, and I'm going to name a real index fund just for the sake of clarity. I'm not saying to go invest in this, but let's say that you have $5,000 invested in the S&P 500 index. Okay. And that means you're in like the top Fortune 500 companies on the US stock market. That's what the S&P 500 index is. So Prestige has whatever financial issues and they as a company have to close their doors. Mm-hmm. But you were not invested in prestige. You were invested in the S&P 500 index. Mm-hmm. So when prestige goes under, they come to you and say, hey, we're going to do what's known as an in-kind transfer. You tell us whatever other brokerage you want to go use. You decide to go use a different like, one. Notable. Let's just mm-hmm. call it Notable. You're like, I'm going to go sign up with Notable. So you just take your S&P 500 index $5,000 that's invested in there and just transfer it over to Notable And you move it over. Just move it over. So you still own your investment. Yeah. So if that brokerage fails, you can move it. But you want to look for that term SPIC that just guarantees that what's known as the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, they're the regulatory body that checks on everything mm-hmm. to do with investing and make sure that those guys are auditing their books and make sure that they're making sure everything's legitimate. It makes it very hard for there to be another Bertie Madoff type Burnham and Cheatham situation. Now, where you could have that happen is if you're going outside what would be kind of the establishment of brokerages and like your buddy says, hey, I've got this like gimmicky investment idea. How about we go try this? That could be where you get taken advantage of. And that's where you do need to kind of sniff out a scam. Or if it's not regulated, like cryptocurrency isn't very well regulated right now. So if your wallet got hacked, it's hard to recover. Oh, that's that's why it's like so little money in there. But like, so, okay. So, okay. So I'm a, I'm a person. I've got like $50 or I've, even if I've got more money and I'm like, okay, I need to like pick a brokerage. I need to like start investing. Someone gives me a name of one. They're like, this is the one you should use. I go, great. I call them 
What do I do? <laughs> What's my next step? I actually highly recommend people get on the phone, which is the most unmillennial thing for me to say. But I no, love to get on the phone. Yeah, and the reason I also recommend it is because you're right. This stuff is really stressful and scary when you're just starting, and it's just reassuring to talk to a human being and just check in to make sure that you are making the right decisions. I also think that it can be really helpful if you have a friend who already has a brokerage account set up, have them sit next to you and walk you through it. Because the one thing I will kind of rag on some of the bigger, older, traditional brokerages about is that they have not updated their websites since like 1999. And so Mm. just the user experience can be a little bit confusing when you're getting started and just trying to make a buy of something. So that's why getting on the phone can be helpful. Wait, but so you would just go on the website? You can just go on the website if you want. What? You can. So let's say, I'm just going to use a real name right now. Let's say you just go to Vanguard. You have to set up an account. So you're going to need to provide them with information like your name, your address, your social security number, all of that kind of information. And then they'll set up an account for you. And then you pick what you want to invest in. So you would Mm -hmm. search for on the site, let's say, again, I'm just going to use the S&P 500 index fund as an example. And you would search for that. And then you click, might say transact, it might say buy, it's going to be a little bit different depending on the actual brokerage's website. And Mm -hmm. you have to link a bank account to it so that they can pull the funds from somewhere. But you have a Mm -hmm. bank account linked to it. And then you put in like, hey, I want to buy $1,000 worth of the S&P 500 index fund. And it transacts it for you. But it's is it better? I always like want to call and just be like, hi, um, I'm new here. Are you a person that can like talk to me like a person? Uh, what do I do? Yes. Are they are they going to be like, we'd love to speak to you? Yeah, of course they do. They want your money. Like, uh, of course, they'll be happy. Well, to speak yeah, to you. <laughs> yes. But I just mean like, you know. They, like, I, I would be like, hi, I would have one stock, please. And they go, great. Well, first of all, I don't recommend doing individual stock picking, which I always think is important to say. But for the sake uh-huh. of your, your point, yeah, you yeah. absolutely can call them and say, hi, first time investing, want to work with your company. Could you explain to me how to set up an account? And I will also tell you, I personally think when you're vetting who to use, that's a great strategy to take because you should take customer service out for a test drive and see what you think about how they're Mm -hmm. treating you. Now, if you have a bad experience, maybe it was just somebody having a bad day and you can try again. But I think it's always imperative to test out customer service with any financial services company you're going to use because Because they work for you. Like, don't. Yeah, they work for you. I would get so scared to ask any question because I'd be like, they're, they are going to hate me. But it's like, no, they work for you. That's their job. Like, you can ask them a thousand they questions. They work for you. They want your money. It's your money. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. No one cares about your money more than you, the other thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. frankly, you are not going to ask them anything they have not already been asked before. And that is something that's really right? important when we talk about this idea of Do not feel stupid to ask any question about investing. None of this is intuitive, to be honest. Everyone has questions. Please just voice your questions. That was one of my favorite things about researching for this book is that I was in the room with incredibly smart people who have been doing this for quite literally decades. And I was able to say, hold on, stop. Can you please explain what that means? Over and over and over. That's all I do because I don't know anything. I, I mean, I... 
<sighs> so, like, part of the problem with this show is that I'm like, okay, here's what you should do. But then I'm also like, also, it's bad. <laughs> like, also, it's probably unethical and, like, is directly created to keep people out. And, like, I'm sure there are people, like, in the fan base of this show that are listening to this and are just like, one, fuck capitalism, which I agree with. And two, like... Uh, like, I am sincerely paycheck to paycheck. I have no clue. Like, there's no world in which I'm going to f- call a brokerage. Like, who am I? The cast of Dynasty? Like, so, like, what, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, how do we, how do we, how do we do it? <laughs> well, first to the paycheck to paycheck lifestyle, I say the first step yeah. is not investing. The first step is breaking that cycle for yourself. And I do not say yeah. that flippantly. I totally get how hard that can be and that it's not just like, oh, just save more, duh, just work harder, duh. That is not the answer. There are systemic reasons why it's very difficult for people to do that. Uh, My first book does provide a lot of the information and tools to help break that cycle. And I would say that while it is important to start learning and educating yourself about investing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time for your money to get invested again yeah, you can't just, it's not this thing of like, everyone should be doing this and you just got to do it no matter what. Like some, some sincerely, you just, some people, you just can't. That's just not the and stitch. And hopefully it's that you get yourself to the point where you can, or at the very least, you're taking advantage of a retirement plan, either at work or that you set up yourself, which is still investing. It is still important to remember yes. that's investing. But to your question too about the ethics of it, there is a whole chapter in the book about that because that is a big question that millennials have. And the problem is when you do invest in generic funds, and when I say a term like index fund, I mean that there are hundreds to thousands of companies that get included in that kind of a fund. So you're investing in tiny little pieces of thousands of companies, of which some of them might have defense contracts, might be tobacco, Mm -hmm. might profit from alcohol, might profit for gambling. Right. And it could not, it very well might not be aligned with your ethical, moral, or religious beliefs. So it's very important that if that is something that you care a lot about, there are ways that you can vet what your options are. You mentioned impact investing earlier. That is something, and I, again, there's a chapter about that in the book. And there is something to be said about investing in a way that doesn't make you feel dirty. And it is possible to do. So, right. So how can you do this in a way that that makes you feel, I don't know, I, I like it just feels like I'm putting on my like gold, gold apparatus to like go outside and I don't know, it feels like so I guess the the it feels icky in like a like contributing to something bad way sometimes. I think part of the reason sometimes it feels icky is also because of the narrative we sometimes get fed about what investing is, what Wall Street is, what that culture is, Mm -hmm. which in some cases certainly can be true, but not necessarily in all. And there are also just different ways to reposition investing in your own mind. And again, impact investing, and thankfully because of technology, we have a lot more access to invest in different ways. I Mm -hmm. think the other thing in the very beginning, I said that It's not gambling because you have a say. You own a piece of the company. And it's important Mm -hmm. to remember that because there are times where you can, as a collective, 
voice your concern and take action and make change. And not mm-hmm. necessarily just with a company in which you might be invested, but it could also be with a brokerage. Because mm-hmm. let's say that you as a collective and you get together with hundreds of thousands of other people who also invest through a similar brokerage and you all say, listen, we want any gun manufacturer taken out of this particular index fund. The yes. brokerage has the power to do that. And if you as yes. a collective say, we're going to walk if you don't do this, it's, it's not unlike a union. And you can speak with your dollars. Yes. That's the thing is choosing to invest in being active and choosing to invest in places that you agree with what they're doing. Because it doesn't And like, it just takes a lot of research, you know, like I, I, there was a friend of mine who was like, yeah, I, I had investments and then I went to the brokerage and I was like, I want, um, Hey, is like anything I'm invested in, like really bad. And then the guy was like, Oh, you want the good guy fund. And then they were like, the what now? And it was like a separate thing where they was like, yeah, we have like a fund that's like, just, just like ethical. And you can choose that one. And she was like, why isn't that the whole thing? (laughs) It's true. Uh, Terms that you'll hear in order for if you're trying to research this, what that's going to be called, you can look up acronyms like ESG. So I believe that stands for Environmental Sustainable Growth. Okay. And then there's SRI, which is Socially Responsible Investing. And then impact investing. As opposed to the rest (laughs) of investing? As opposed to just, just throwing your money in. Now... To further compound and complicate things, though, you could have a company that technically passes ESG compliance or SRI compliance. For instance, and this is an interesting workaround, casinos often tend to be ESG compliant because a lot of them, and I don't know if maybe it's because a lot of them are located in Vegas and because of the desert and the drought, they are very, very good at conserving water. And there's a lot of, you know, just general environmental factors that they're typically above and beyond what you would think. Mm -hmm. I also think the bars set kind of low. So that's another thing to remember and consider. But a casino, for instance, might pass ESG compliance and then be in an ESG compliant fund. But you personally might have an ethical issue with gambling and therefore not want a casino in your fund. So that is also where it can get even more complicated depending on what you designate as your personal ethical boundaries. Got it. So you can't just you can't just be passive about this. You you shouldn't be passive about it. Yeah, it should be something (sighs) that, again, it's no different than how we shop. You want to shop with companies that you believe are ethical. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of things that are convenient tend to be less ethical or that are Mm -hmm. cheap in some cases. So the stock market really is not dissimilar to just day-to-day life, how we're speaking with our dollars. And that, yeah, it, if, if it's something that's important to you and that matters to you, it does take a little bit more research and a little bit more digging. But hopefully that doesn't dissuade you from getting started. We need more people that care. We need more people actively participating in the market and voicing their concerns and being able to rally each other and make changes and speak with their dollars. It's really important to have that demographic entering the market. That's the thing is that how do we, how do we, I guess this is my final question is like, how do we get it to be that there's more, 
diversity in in this kind of thing and that people like me and people of color and and other kinds of marginalized people don't feel just like so edged out of this is it just like people like me and you talking about it you know I wish that I had an easy answer to that question, but I do think that education it has to be at the forefront of this conversation mm-hmm. and to not feel hopeless about it. I think that happens a lot is that we come up against things that feel complicated or we come up against stuff that does take a little while for us to understand or that at first mm-hmm. we might not be able to get access to. But there are quite literally millions of other people that are feeling the same way and we are then a large collective who should be able to work together to try to help solve this problem. Aaron's not going to push you to invest if you're not ready. And being ready is the first step and something other financial gurus do not take into account. I also agree that we very much need to change the language around investing so the things that are investments are named as such and not mislabeled as saving. We need to commit to being aware of where our money is going, ethically and morally. We have to be careful or as careful as we feel like being. Like most money stuff, it takes self-reflection and self-knowledge, a definite weakness of mine, if you couldn't tell from my panic during this interview. Listening back to this, I realize I sound really, really nervous. And if you're as nervous as I am, pick up Broke Millennial Takes On Investing and listen to this episode multiple times. I had to, and I was there. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager-Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. And I'm Gabby Dunn. See you next week. Bye! Stitcher. 